I'm Andrew Mitchell, and you're listening to Don't Mess With Nature, a series of podcasts where we look at how to get the world into a better state of equilibrium between nature and money. Today, I thought we'd uh, have a think about thunderbolts and lightning. I was out for a walk last night. It was quite warm. It's uh, the changing of the seasons, and a big storm was gathering over the sea. I could see the dark clouds approaching, and eventually there were some big thunderclaps. One of the things uh, we've noticed, I think, over the last 50 years, or certainly for those of us who are a bit younger in the last couple of decades, is the increasing frequency of catastrophic weather events, either big fires, big forest fires, or uh, big storms, such as hurricanes in the Caribbean, big storms even coming across into Europe and across the British coast, which is where I live in, in Britain, on a little island to the south of the United Kingdom called Jersey. And I thought it'd be interesting to have a discussion about what's happening here and what's the connection between nature and money. The idea of storms and and lightning and thunderbolts has been part of human culture through time. Think of the great Norse god Thor with his mighty hammer that you might see on cinema screens meeting out thunderbolts and lightning to defeat his enemies. The idea of creating rain and managing the weather has been a a constant uh, desire of the human race and sometimes thought to be in the power of kings like the Mayans who lived in their great towers looking out over the forests in Central America and the priests uh, believed that they could control the weather and make rain and the way the secret of that was to create sacrifices of humans or their enemies and by doing so they could control the rain and keep everybody fed and watered. Well, you know, these storms are are getting pretty scary. The the costs of them are getting pretty high. So something's something's happening because if you look back over the graphs of insurance payouts over the last decades, it's been going up and up and up quite dramatically. Just last year in Britain, for instance, we had Storm Dennis and Kiara, and they uh, thought to have cost around £350 million in damage. Before that, in 2015, we had Ava, Frank and Desmond, one after the other hitting us, and the cost of that was about £1.3 The California fires caused by something very different, drought. We seem to get not enough rain in one place and too much in another. And if you don't have enough, of course, you get droughts or deserts. And in the case of California, terrible fires causing enormous damage to homes and life. And then if you get too much, you get floods. And sometimes one seems to follow the other. You had the California fires. And then after that, you got masses of rain and terrible floods and all the mud went down the mountain, exacerbating the problem. The CEO of Lloyd's, uh, then uh, Inga Beale, estimated that in costs could go up to as much as 150 billion. And that's a problem for all of us, isn't it? Because we pay the premiums. I'm, I'm sure you've got, if you own a home, you have insurance. If you've got a car, you've got insurance. You hope the accident will never occur or your home will never burn down. You keep paying out the premium. And everybody moans about it, but you certainly need that insurance if you have an accident or when your house burns down. And it's the same thing for these storms. You know, you pay out because you don't want your house to burn down or be carried away in a flood. But these insurance companies have to pay that out, and that costs them a lot of money, and they pass the costs on to us, and that's called an insurance premium. Well, the worry is, if, if you're paying up, up to $150 billion a year, how high are those insurance premiums going to go? It's going to become a social problem. Maybe it's going to be so expensive that we can't afford it. So that's quite a thought, isn't it? So I thought, where does this all begin? I thought we'd go back to 2014 
when I was at the climate conference in Lima. This is a, a meeting that happens every, every year. It's called the Climate COP, the Convention of the Parties. And you get you know, anything up to 20,000 people showing up at these events. 200 countries, everybody sends a representative, and we all try and figure out what to do about climate change. They've been at it 26 years. The one that's coming up next is COP26, but because of the COVID disaster, it was planned for uh, the end of this year in Britain, in Glasgow, in fact, but it's had to be postponed because we can't plan it because no one can meet because of COVID. So the next one's going to be sometime next year, probably in the first quarter of 2021, we'll have that COP. Anyway, we were absolutely exhausted. These things are exhausting, these negotiations. And it went to 10 years of them. And, and you get completely exhausted. You're working all night. You're trying to persuade people. You know, sometimes there's hours and hours and hours arguing over a comma in the text. So at the end of that, I was completely knackered. And a friend of mine gave me a call called Virgilio, a Brazilian. And he said, look, Andrew, why don't we go and have a hike to the source of the Amazon? I said, what? I, I've had no sleep for two weeks. I'm completely knackered. I want to go home. No, 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 no. He says, this is really good. You should come. I said, but hang on, where is it? And he says, it's in Peru. Oh, I said, well, I'm in Peru. That's good. He says, well, where? Well, it's, it's up at about 5,000 meters in the Andes. He said, 5,000 meters? You know, you've got to get used to going up to that height. So, oh, typical Brazil. No, 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 typically Brazil. No, no, we can, we can go in. Let's go, let's go. So I said, all right, let's go. So I get in a plane. We end up going down to a town in South of Peru called Arequipa. We get in some vehicles and we start driving. And we go up, 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 up into the Andes. And you go from the dry lands on the coastline of Peru, getting higher, higher through forests. And eventually... You get up to some of the highest villages in the world. And we went to one called Chivai. And there we met up, spent a couple of days there meeting the local community. And they said they wanted to go in. They'd come with us to bless the headwaters of the Amazon. And so everybody got dressed up in their fine clothes. We had about 20 of us in the party, about six or seven shamans, all in wonderful cloaks of bright blue and red embroidery, gold, all stitched together in that fabulous Andean colours, all with their staffs of office, dark, hard, dark woods with silver figurines on top. And we set out for the source of the Amazon. Well, it's quite a hike, and I don't rate myself. I have climbed a few mountains in my life, and I always thought I was pretty crap at it, but I thought I'm, gonna, I'm never going to make it. When you walk at that height, there isn't enough oxygen. You're that high up. There's not enough oxygen getting in your lungs. And so it makes you sick and you get uh, mountain sickness. It can be very dangerous, actually. If you do start getting headaches, you've got to go down fast because it can kill you. Anyway, the, the great solution to all this is, called, is mate, which is coca leaves, tea. Uh, it's a herbal tea made from cocaine leaves, the same thing that uh, the coca plant. You pour that in the tea and you drink lots of that. The shamans, as we were going, we, we'd walk and stop. and It's getting swampy. You're getting out of breath and you're, you're trying to, these guys, they go like mountain goats. They're so fast, but they were shorter than me. And I figured it out. That if I took longer steps, I had a 20% extra step than they did. I could just keep up with them. Anyway, you get knackered and they stop and they open up a little pouch out of their hands and say, take this, take this. And it's little white powder, coca leaves, sometimes with, with a nut. But I, I just took the leaves and they, these coca leaves and they, I took a great bunch of them and you stick a great bolus in the side of your mouth and chew it and that gives you strength and stops you feeling sick because a lot of the time you go up these mountains you start vomiting because of the altitude sickness. so we're walking we're walking in days and days and days and we get all the way and let cut a long story short after a very long hike 
uh, we got up to this incredible amphitheater of mountains, going through valley after valley after valley. You think, oh, I'm there now. No, and you get up to yet another valley going on, miles. And we eventually arrived at this extraordinary rust-colored amphitheater of mountains with six huge mountains all in a circle. And coming out of that huge bowl was a little stream. The stream was coming through green, swampy, green and yellow moss all around it and little stones. And out of a crack in the rocks was this splashing water, sparkling water coming out of the cliff. And that was the source of the Amazon. That little stream starts a journey that goes 6,400 kilometers to the sea. It's not the longest river in the world. The Nile is slightly longer at 6,650 kilometers, though explorers continue to debate. This particular source of the Amazon, because there are many around the basin, of course, this just happens to be the longest distance to the sea, was found by Neil McIntyre in 1971, a photographer working with National Geographic. And we had a photographer with the National Geographic with us again to record this great thing. So the problem was, as we go higher and higher up the mountain, and by, by the way, it, it's pretty cold up here now. You know, there's no trees, there's only scrubby vegetation and stuff. And these shamans were really worried because the llama fields that were a bit further down, which are fed by waters from these streams, were all drying up. And all around the mountains, you can see these incredible aqueducts created by the early uh, inhabitants and civilizations who used to live there to bring water from the snow. Because, of course, the Andes was covered in snow. That's the source of the water in the Amazon from the Andes is coming from snowmelt. You know, there's something funny when I went there. Hardly any of the mountains had any snow on anymore. Only one had a big side covered in snow. Out of all those mountains, they've all lost their snow in the last 20 years. The farmers all say, oh, yeah, it used to be covered in snow. And these wonderfully leathery-faced farmers would look up at those mountains and they said, we desperately need rain. So they got together and they brought with them some interesting things. They brought a bottle of salt water to represent the ocean. They brought herbs. They brought shells, little bits of fat and meat. They brought even the fetus of a deer. And they brought starfishes to represent the ocean. And they started a ceremony, chanting. They made a fire, they cut some of the bushes around and made a little fire just beside the stream at the very source. And they're chanting and they were doing incantations and we were all standing around. It was freezing. They had their big cloaks on and their big wide brim hats and they were looking at their leathery faces, holding up their hands with seashells and muttering and singing. And it was a very, very beautiful ceremony and we all stood around and felt really moved by it. And as they finished, they started packing up their bags. And it still makes the hairs on my neck stand up as I tell you this, because it was a clear blue sky and suddenly clouds began to gather around the mountain heads. We heard a clap of thunder and ba-boom. And it started snowing and snow poured down all around us and turned the whole place white. And they all started crying. They said, we haven't had any rain or snow for months. Now, I don't know what happened, but whether there was anything to do with what they'd done, or was it a coincidence? But the fact is, it did start precipitating. And that begins that journey of water 
from the source of the Amazon right down into Brazil, which everybody knows where the Amazon is, but it's also eight countries actually, Venezuela and Colombia and Peru and others all have a slice of the Amazon. And that water begins a journey that takes us into what is not the lungs of the earth. It's actually the beating heart of the world. Corazón de mundo is what the locals call it. It's the beating heart. Why is it a beating heart? Because it's the biggest rain-making machine on the planet. It keeps the entire land surface around it cool. It distributes heat around the earth. So if I now swap to a tower in the center of the Amazon, there's a loads of them run by a program funded by Brazil and other governments to, in a sense, see how the Amazon breathes. And these incredible towers are bristling with instruments and are spread out across the Amazon. And through them, you can measure oxygen going in and out of the Amazon, water vapor, carbon dioxide, and all of that kind of thing. It's an amazing program. I found myself on top of one of these looking at a tiny meter, and it was spitting out a number, tick, 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 tick. That number was measuring the amount of carbon dioxide uh, that was coming out in the atmosphere above those forests. And of course, when I was there, it was a particular number. Now it's increased a lot since I was there. So you can measure the CO2 going up. But as I looked out over the forest, I thought, do you ever wonder why a rainforest is called a rainforest? It's a rainforest. And what's really interesting is they create their own rain, just like those rainmakers were trying to do. And the way they do it has been discovered by the scientists of this, what's called the LBA, the, the Large Scale Biosphere Atmosphere Experiment. These trees release what are called volatile organic compounds. If you walk into a rainforest, it, it, Jerry Durrell, the old naturalist, you say it smells like plum cake, and he's right. And that smell of sort of, you know, if you ever pick up a carrot cake and give it a good sniff, that sort of smell you get, or Christmas cake, is what it smells like in, in the rainforest. And those are volatile organic compounds. They're, they're, they're the chemicals that come out from the leaves and the flowers and the bark, and they float up into the atmosphere above the forest on a gigantic scale. Those little tiny particles oxidize in sunlight and create condensation nuclei around which water droplets form. You see, you can't have rain without dust. That's why in the middle of the ocean, you don't get a lot of rain because there's no dust, there's nothing above it, there's no nucleus around which the water droplet can form. So when you get to areas of the ocean where there's lots of upwellings uh, and lots of plankton living, plankton release these compounds up into the atmosphere as well. And so, so nature is seeding our atmosphere for rain all the time. And in the Amazon, it's absolutely vast. And these little compounds are really important because as they go out from the rainforest, they create a rain and the rain falls. The Amazon sucks in moisture uh, from the Caribbean. I mean, they're going to come back to the Caribbean in a minute. So remember that. So it's sucking all this moisture, which hits Guyana, because what seems to be happening is that rainforests sort of almost create a vacuum, which sucks water in from the ocean. There's some very interesting nuclear physicists called Gorshkosh and Maria Keva, who produced some papers on this, which were quite controversial, actually. The meteorological guys didn't like it because they think all these cycles occur just through Hadley cells. They don't like the idea that nature has a hand in it. It's all to do with latent heat and the movement of heat up and down from the surface to the atmosphere. And yes, that is true. Hadley cells are really important for that. But forests have a hand in it, too, it seems. So the water gets sucked in 
and is recycled five or six times across the Amazon from right to left, if you're looking on a map. In other words, Guyana, all the way up. And guess what? It bumps up against the Andes where I was in the source of the Amazon, falls down as snow and flows back into the Amazon. But the rainforests are creating rain all the time. There's another really interesting thing. It's called a flying river. This moisture moves like a gigantic atmospheric river of moisture and swirls around across the Amazon, hits the Andes, goes south down to the Rio Plata Basin, and guess what? Drops all its rain just where we need it, on those massive breadbaskets of the world, and to look after the 22 million people that live in Sao Paulo. Now, here's our problem, isn't it? If we cut down the rainforest, what are we doing to that water cooling system? You know when you have a shower in the morning and you step out? It's cold, isn't it? And that, that's water evaporating from your skin. And it's the same kind of process that the Amazon doing in giant scale. It keeps the land surface temperatures down and it creates all this moisture. And some of that moisture, you can see it. If you, if you Google NASA's, um, I don't know what it's called, but you, there's a wonderful swirly cloud picture that you can see of the Earth from space where you can see the movement of moisture in this flying river around the Amazon. Some of it goes north, up into the Caribbean, swirls around there, right up to America. Even some of that is then carried all the way to Europe. And if you can see it right across the world, how important that not only the Amazon, but the great forests of Africa and Asia are also distributing this cooling effect, this moisture and heat and distributing it around the world like a life belt. It's really important. So if we stuff that up, what happens? We get less rain. When you have less rain and you cut down the forest, the land surface heats up. What you see in the Amazon normally is lovely, low clouds, gentle rain, very stable system. When you break it up around the edges and you move further out and it gets dry, you get more violent storms because the, it gets so hot. It takes all the water right up high in the atmosphere. It gets cold like it was at the top of the mountains. It gets super cold and then it falls in gigantic storms with massive rain dumps and you get floods. So we had, had massive floods in the Western Amazon and terrible droughts in the other end where Sao Paulo needs all the rain. What happens, you get Sao Paulo and the neighboring states all fighting each other in court for water. But what about the Caribbean? Why are we seeing all these big storms coming up in the Caribbean? Well, it seems that the sea surface temperature is getting hotter and hotter because the earth temperature is getting hotter and hotter. Now there's something very important. The strength of a storm is caused by the temperature of the water that it's flowing over. So hurricanes gather strength as they move over warmer and warmer water. And it's logarithmic. What that means is that a little tiny increase in the sea surface temperature makes a hurricane way, way stronger. So this tiny increase in sea surface temperatures that we've been seeing over decades, uh, that coupled perhaps with the lack of the cooling influence from the moisture coming out of places like the Amazon, means that we're getting more and more powerful hurricanes. What that ends up in is back where we started, with your premium and my premium. And we've seen the staggering costs of these hurricanes in the recent years. The 2018 weather and climate catastrophe cost was $225 billion. I mean, that's huge around the world. Only 90 billion of that was insured. So there's a big gap there between the costs and the insurance. We're not insuring ourselves enough. Uh, you might have remembered in my podcast on the meaning of life, it was Douglas Adams who said, uh, there's something strange about the number 42, and that's the meaning of life. Well, it's funny, isn't it? That in 2018, there were 42 catastrophe events, weather-related catastrophe. There were 42 of them that cost more than a billion dollars in that year. 
And all that affects our premiums. All that affects the insurance industry. And uh, it's all tied into nature. And uh, it, it's going to affect our premiums. And perhaps in another talk, I'll be able to tell you uh, how, how the insurance industry is actually coping with these massive weather-related events. They know all about it. They've got really good data. So on the risk side, they're doing really well. But where they've got the blind spot is how they're spending your money and my money on the premiums they collect. They collect billions of dollars from you and I, and it's how they spend it that's the problem. Because are they making the problem worse or better by the, how they spend your money and mine? And there's one thing that they all need to learn, is that looking after nature is the best insurance policy you could ever have. I'm Andrew Mitchell, and you've been listening to Don't Mess With Nature. Join me next time for another podcast on how we can get nature and money in a better state of balance. Thank you.